Hello, and thanks for tuning in to Oceanside School of the Bible. Oceanside School of the Bible exists to provide biblically sound, Christ-centered equipping opportunities for leaders and upcoming leaders. I'm Mark Manfredi, and you're listening to Ephesians, Who We Are and How We Live. This is Episode 8, Ephesians 5, 1-21. Well, I want you to think back when you first started grade school, if you can remember that far back, uh, you know, kindergarten, grade 1, grade 2, there was a lot of rules that started to come down as soon as you walked into the schoolyard, right? And it seems like there's just a lot, a lot of rules we have to teach our kids when they go to school. And it seems like there's kind of two personality traits or types when it comes to rules. I think there are people that are rule keepers, just sort of by the way they're wired. And then there are rule testers, you know? Uh, So when you think about the rules, uh, for the rule keepers, rules are comforting. It's like, ah, everything is okay. There's rules. I'm I'm coloring in the lines. For the rule testers, rules are kind of annoying, (laughs) you know, right? Uh, Rules are, for the rule keepers, they're important for everyone. It's important that everyone keeps the rules. For rule testers, it's important for other people. (laughs) There's a subtle difference there, right? But rule testers are like, I'm all good for rules as long as it's not me, right? Uh, Rule keepers, rules are based on ageless wisdom. It's such a good thing, right? Rule testers are like, nah, it's worth testing that out a little bit before I embrace that. (laughs) So I think there's kind of two different approaches to rules. uh, And it's... Funny that those of you that had children, a lot of times your firstborn is the is the rule keeper, and I think it's the humor of God because you know after about two years, as a couple, we can go. This is not so hard. What's everybody whining about? Parenting is great. This is easy. Let's have another one. <laughs> Sometimes the second one that's your rule tester, you know. So, uh, but you know whether tonight. Well, let's just take a little quick poll. How many of you say you are rule keepers? You like the rules. I'm just looking because I know some of you guys good. Okay. And how many of you are rule testers? <laughs> yeah, okay. I like it. So, oh, I see. Yes. Charles jumping up and down and back. Yes. Rule testers. Yeah, right. Well, <clears throat> the cool thing is tonight that um, whether you're a rule keeper or a rule tester, I think there are some benefits for both, both kinds of people in our passage tonight. Um, So let's start out, we'll read uh, verses 1 and 2. I'm in 5, of course, uh, Ephesians chapter 5. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Interesting that he starts this passage with something that sounds pretty crazy to me, actually. Be imitators of God? Like, God is very big and very perfect and very everythingness, right? How do I imitate God? But he talks about, says, being imitators of God, beloved children. Um, I think we're kind of wired to imitate. If you think about that, you know, little children, we, we kind of learn from our parents. Um, you know, as we grow up in, in life, you know, we start to mimic kind of other things, maybe maybe friends as we sort of get in the junior high years, we start to kind of mimic them. Sometimes as we get older, it's our neighbors, uh, we have maybe mentors in our life or in our workplace that we want to kind of be like. We, we pattern our life after them. Sometimes it's like movie stars, right, or, or af- athletes or whatever. But I think we're kind of wired, uh, you know, to, to imitate and to mimic. Uh, I remember the first time this really hit me home. I was an early 20s 
hip, cool high school counselor guy with a big blonde afro, and you know they had me leading a cabin of of little, you know maybe grade two or grade three boys for a summer camp for a week, right? And we went out for a hike, and they were all behind me, and I happened to pick up a stick and started walking. And as I look back, each of the boys had picked up a stick and were doing exactly the same thing I was doing. I was like, "Whoa, this is this is a big responsibility, right?" But I think we're we're we tend to model ourselves after people around us, and and it's just neat that he starts this passage just actually God is the one that I want you to be mimicking yourself uh, after, not the things maybe that you you used to do before you came to know Christ, but I want you to mimic God. Um, and then he talks about the sacrifice that Christ made: walk in love as Christ loved us, and gave Himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So this whole passage starts out in light of what Jesus did. Just this good reminder to say, before I get into all this stuff, I want you to remind you what Jesus Christ has done. It's almost like he's, he's putting a weightiness, weightiness on this next discussion, sort of saying, hey, don't forget what made all this possible is Jesus Christ and his obedience to the cross. So there's kind of a kind of a solemnity or a sobriety, I think, about what's coming when, when Paul sort of starts the discussion off to say, I got some pretty heavy stuff to say. But I want to remind you of the big context of that and also of the context of love. You know, we, we a lot of times think about 1 Corinthians 13 sort of standalone, but it's after 12 and before 14. And those are pretty heavy chapters, both. And I think it's great that they're in there because love is the thing that, it's the grease sort of that makes everything work, that keeps things operating. So and before we get into all the heavy stuff, I think it's just great that Paul says, think about God. He's the one you want to be like. When you grow up, if you want to say that. Um, and then don't forget how serious this is because of what Jesus Christ has done. He paid a very high price for you to be able to walk in Christianity. Uh, and then, of course, everything fits together in love. Comments, questions? Just two verses, but we're getting started. Anything there that you want to touch base on before we move on? Okay. Now, before I read 3 to 7, <laughs> I've learned as a preacher... There are, you can preach about anything you want in church, but there are two subjects that I promise you, if you preach on them, the room will get quiet. <laughs> and it's the bank account and the bedroom. Those two things. You talk about money or you talk about sexuality and people get really quiet and sometimes they get really angry. Sometimes their backs get up with how dare you talk about my money or what I do with my money or don't tell me God wants to do something with my money. And even more so with our sexuality, those two areas are very, very powerful areas. So I've just learned as a pastor to say whatever you want, but be ready on those days when you're going to talk about one of those two things, because it is um, that's the battlefield, those two areas, our money and our sexuality. So obviously, as we go into this chapter, if you've read ahead, with this first part talks, talks a lot about our sexuality. Um, and so I'll just read uh, 3 to 7. But sexual immorality and all impurity... Or covetousness must not be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience." Therefore, do not become partners with them. Before we go into this whole thing and start to talk about some of the rules, and by the way, you know, people, I've heard people say, oh, Christianity is not about rules. 
Well, yes and no. Yeah, we are forgiven and given life through Christ. But it's, I don't think it's fair to say there aren't some rules because God does give us some rules. And here's some rules relating to our sexuality that he does lay out. Um, but before we get into some of those rules, I think it's important just to remind ourselves that God designed sex. Uh, he thought it up. It wasn't the devil's idea. Uh, it was part of his creation. And, and at the end of the seventh day, he looked at everything, including human sexuality, and said, it's good. It's very good. So don't forget this was all God's idea, uh, that two people, a man and woman, would be joined in marriage, and the two would become one flesh. This was all God's idea. Matthew 19, 4 to 6, they were trying to trip up Jesus and get him to you know, start to make some statements regarding divorce, and, and he just went back and reminded them about the original beauty of God's plan. And, and Matthew 19, uh, 4 to 6, Jesus just summarized real quickly and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they, now, they are no longer two, but one flesh. Whatever God has joined together, let man not separate. So this was God's idea, and this intimacy, this union, is really a very powerful, powerful picture. Um, you know, marriage, a Christian marriage between a man and a woman who loves each other and loves Jesus is one of the most powerful things on earth. That bond in agreement when there's a house in unity under Christ, that is a very, very powerful thing in terms of that union. Uh, and as a matter of fact, there's pictures of it in Ephesians. We'll, we'll just jump into what we're going to look at next week. But in Ephesians 5, I just want to read uh, quick 31 and 32 to get, you'll think, we'll talk about this in detail next week. But it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So not just this physical union, but there's this picture of Christ and the church when, when a husband and wife live in holy matrimony in a Christian marriage in their home. And I think for this reason, Satan really, really hates this union. And he will try to do everything he can to defile it. If this is a picture of Christ and the church, we know there's nothing that Satan hates more than that. Uh, and so he, it's not surprising to me that he comes after marriages and tries to unwind marriages because this is a picture, a heavenly picture, not only of what God's created that's good, but between Christ and the church. First um, Corinthians 6 talks a, a, an awful lot about our sexuality and a lot of, a lot of really in detailed te teaching, even more than where we are in Ephesians, is in 1 Corinthians 6. But in 6.15, um, Paul talks about and says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? So again, this thing we talked about before, the temple of the Holy Spirit, the things we've all talked about at the beginning of Ephesians, he's just reminding them to say, don't forget that this is a holy, uh, your body is holy after you've been redeemed by Christ. So in the context of prostitution, he says, shall I take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who's joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it's written, the two will become one flesh. So I think you really see that Satan comes against marriages and it comes against our sexuality to twist and distort any way he can because it's such a beautiful thing that God has created. Uh, and this this marriage, this Christian marriage, is the beginning and one of the most it has cosmic superpower, if you want to say it, a husband and a wife. You know, we've we've learned this. When we're in agreement in situations and we pray, there's a power uh, in for Dean and I in our marriage. And you add that into a Christian family when the children are on the same page, man, that's power. That's unity in the family. Um, 
but Satan will throw any kind of sexual involvement, any kind of temptation outside from that marriage to be able to, to disrupt that marriage. And of course, he's got all kinds of tricks. He does that. We look a little farther down in 6, 1 Corinthians. We'll read a little bit more there. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 um, through 10. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will, swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But listen to what he says. And some of you, and some, and such, and such were some of you. But you were washed and you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. Um, so again, in this situation for the Ephesians too, many of these Christians would have come out of really, really messed up views of sexuality and sexual practices. Um, so I think Paul's just reminding them again how different God's uh, plan for our sexuality is than the devil's wreckage that he wants to cause. Um, you know, I, I, we'll go back, to, if we can finish up a little bit in 6 there, I'll keep reading where I was before. Flee sexual immorality in verse 18. He says, every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And again, back into what I said, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, who you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price, so glorify your God with your body. Um, you know, there's, as a, again, as a pastor for many years, there's lots of times where I've seen people really powering for God, growing in the Lord, just doing amazing things in their Christian life. And then once in a while, there's this, like somebody flips the light off in that person's life. It's like they flip a switch and they go completely another way. And it used to, you know, mystify me when I was early in my pastor, pastor. But a lot of times I have learned over the years to say, if I could sit down with that person and say, hey, tell me what's going on. Why, why this radical change, you know? Many, many times that has to do with that person's fallen into a sexual sin or, or Satan's tempted them. And there's something about sexual sin that has a great power. All sin is, is uh, you know, brings death. All sin has the same uh, penalty, but different sin have different consequences. And sexual sin seems to be one of those things that really, really can derail us from the purposes of God because it's actually physically part of what our body is. And this is why... It, it's such a powerful weapon in the enemies, and it's why it's a battleground for us as believers, because it really, really can strengthen us in God when we're do, when we're walking in God's design for our sexuality and be a beautiful thing and a unifying thing and an empowering thing and a growing thing, and it can work completely opposite way when the enemy gets hold of it and twists it and bends it around in terms of wreckage and you know pain and sinfulness and scarring and you know all the stuff that comes when we when when that takes place. Um, so this is what I would just call out-of-bounds sexuality. God has, de God has defined what his picture for human sexuality was. And anything that I would just say is out-of-bounds, this is a destructive force that Satan loves to use to derail uh, what God intends in a person's life. So we really see him, Paul, laying this back out in Ephesians 5 now. And he talks about three things, sexual immorality, impurity, and covenous. So sexual immorality would be, again, anything outside of God's boundaries of how he designed sexuality. Uh, impurity has just has to do with again something that you know is not something that's glorifying God, and all these things do relate to sexuality. I think there are different aspects of that, but even covetousness is is you have something that I want. That's the essence of what covetousness is, and I think in terms of this discussion, 
it right in line with those two other words. He's talking about sexual desire here too. So these three things together, he says, don't even be named. This kind of thing does not even be named among the saints. He says, don't even, don't even have filthy or foolish talk or crude joking. <laughs> Man, this is hard. I got to be honest, especially with guys, you know, you know, where I work, there are places and times around the water cooler that things get very, very raunchy, you know. And I have to be even really careful. Like, what do I do? Do I laugh at that joke? You know, do I, am I part of that? Am I not even around when I know that's going to happen? Uh, but Paul says, I don't even want you joking about this because it's so serious. I don't want you to cause someone else to stumble because you've got some off-color joke or something that brings the person's mind down the wrong track. So it's pretty serious. Uh, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. <laughs> that's a whole different way of thinking about changing things, right? Um, and then he says, for every, make sure everyone who's sexually immoral or pure or covetous, that's those three words again, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes against the sons of disobedience. We know that, in, that the Holy Spirit convicts of sin, and one of the things that God is going to have to settle in the end is the things that we've done, the sins that we've done sexually, among a lot of other things. Obviously, the things we've lived, the things we've spoken, but there is an accounting that's going to come in the end times um, you know, for this. So Paul is reminding, this is, this is serious business. Um, and he says, don't, become, don't be partners with people like that, people that are living like that. I don't even want you to have anything to do with them. Uh, for at one time you were in darkness, but now you're the light of the Lord. So who's Paul talking about here? And this is, I thought, thought a lot, of been thinking about this passage for a long time. Like, who's Paul talking about? He's obviously writing to the Christians in the church at Ephesus, but who is, who is he referencing when he says, don't be part with these people? Well, there's a lot of different ideas on who he's talking about. I think there's two really good candidates. Uh, one is I think he may be talking about just immoral people who want to cover up their sin with religion. Uh, so this is like whitewashing, you know, and one of the most, maybe the most uh, wicked forms of abuse is sexual sin covered over with religion. You know, uh, this is why the residential school was such a horrible thing in, this, in, in Canada and why we've got, you know, generations of families still reeling from someone who looked holy, who was supposed to be good, who had a certain dress and a certain demeanor and a certain title, and yet they were sexually abusing, you know, these kids in, these, in the schools, right? So it's this, this religion covering over this excuse of this sexual impurity. It's a very, very dangerous kind of thing. And I think there have always been people that want to gather around some kind of Christian organization and put on some kind of quasi-Christian-y looking thing that, that, so they can hide in plain sight, so to speak. You know, a wolf in sheep's clothing and other places the scripture talks about. So there are always people that are looking to, to, to look a certain way on the outside to... So for them to deflect the attention from what really is going on in, in their own life. So that, there must have been people like that in the church that Paul is warning them about. Be very, very careful about these people. Uh, Jesus talks to the Pharisees about being whitewashed sepulchers. Sepulcher is a, you know, a, a grave, basically a, a crypt, right? So you take the outside and you clean it all up like this wall and you brocade it with fancy cement and you paint it all white. But inside is rot, putrid, dead man's bones, Jesus says. I think that's the essence of a person who's hiding under religion, hiding their sexual dysfunction and their sin over a cover of religion. Paul says, be careful about these people. Don't have anything to do with them. They are dangerous, dangerous, dangerous. There's another possibility of this group that, that would be what, what theologians call the Gnostics. 
and the Gnostics was kind of a cult that grew out early in the first century. And when this book was written, it probably was around, maybe not full blown, but but Gnostics basically said the body in, in the material is sinful and only the spirit is good. It was a form of dualism that said anything that is flesh is bad and anything that spirit is good. So the Gnostics, if this is true, that this was starting to kind of catch on in the church in Ephesus was there's two extremes. The first extreme would be to say the body is bad. I want to, you know, do everything I can to beat it down and to deny it. And so they would even say, you know, husbands and wives in Christian marriage shouldn't be having sex because that's that's fleshly. And, you know, so they go over the other end to say complete denial and and completely that way. But the other side, other side is licentiousness, which says, look, if this is all just sinful and it's all going to burn, let her rip, you know, we'll do whatever we want, you know. So there's that licentiousness. This is not the spirit. This is just my body and my body's sinful anyway, so I might as well just enjoy that, right? So you can see how messed up this, this thing with Gnosticism got. And by the second or third century, it was really, really a big problem. But it was probably starting, you'd start to see in the Christian churches, other places that it comes up. So, so this is who Paul's talking about, I think, when he talks about this. And he says, these people don't have inheritance in the kingdom of God. They look like Christians, but those that are covering that up purposely, they don't, they don't have a place in that. They might be, be pretending, they might be putting on the language and the clothing and even hanging around your services but be, be careful of people like that and don't even associate with people like this, how serious this was for Paul. And remember we talked about how uh, sex-crazed the culture was in Ephesus and how you know, the Christians had to come out of that culture. So Paul's really, really you know, helping to see, look, when you come into Christ and into the church, you can't take that stuff in and especially you cannot cover it up with religion. Uh, it's just deadly. And, and Paul says we can't have any, anything, any piece of that anywhere in the church. So. Okay, let's keep going, because it's not all about this, but there's some more here. So 8, let's get to this part you're talking about. Starting 8, I'll read 8 to 14, first half of 14. Uh, For at one time you were in darkness, and now you're in light of the Lord. Walk as children of the light, for fruit of the light is found in all that's good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it's shameful even to speak of the things they do in secret. When they do anything as exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. So now we shift gears and talk about this whole issue of the light. And this is a motif that we see all through the New Testament, even in the Old Testament too, but that God is light. And we see that so many different places. First John is all about that, the book of First John, talking about light. Um, and, you know, when you think about sinfulness, where does sinfulness usually come about? People break into your house usually at night. You know, people park on the side of the road usually at night. You know, sinful sinful behavior doesn't like attention drawn to it. It, the domain of sinfulness is darkness. You know, is hiddenness, is secretness. This is just between me and I'm what I know. What else knows what I'm doing, kind of thing, right? And so Paul talks this contrast to say, look, when we're Christians, actually we live in the light. The light of God, the light of God pours into that thing. And somebody, I don't know where it came from, but I picked it up. Sunlight is the best disinfectant. Man, that is a, that's a keeper for me. You know, sunlight is the best disinfected. When we've got issues of sin and hidden stuff in our life, when we open that up to God's light and to reveal, man, that's a, that's a really powerful disinfectant. And I think that's basically what he's saying is, he says, we are the light. We walk as light uh, and we want to discern what is good and pleasing in the Lord. So we don't want anything to do with darkness. We actually want to expose that, you know? So if we know of something that's going on, particularly, I think, and this is the context of the church, we don't just overlook that. We don't wink at that. 
We don't just sweep it under the rug. We don't just move that religious leader to some other parish. You know, we expose that and we got to deal with that. We have a responsibility to be able to take that head on and say, look, this is not right. This doesn't belong in the church. Now, there are ways to do that that's correct and godly. There's lots of scripture that has to do with the leadership in the church, and there's a lot, a lot of things there. But I think Paul's saying we can't wink at this. We, we don't allow this to go on in the church because it's a, it's a rot that will ruin our lives and ruin our witness within the church. Um, um, anything exposed with the light becomes visible. Uh, anything becomes visible as light. So this real, this motif of who God is. And, and I think that Satan always likes to keep the, keep things secret. You know, when there have, when we've done things that are wrong, there is a power that he has when that thing stays secret. When someone's done a sin to us, there is a power that stays over us when he can keep it secret. And there's a, it has this thing that's just like, don't tell anybody about that. You know, don't, don't let that be a part of out into the open. But when it comes into the open, then God begins to be able to heal that and bring healing in that. Um, Satan loses his power over those things that we've done sinful and those sinful things done to us when they're brought into the light. And that's the opposite of sometimes how we feel. We just want to hide that thing away, lock it up, put it under lock and key, it, you know, and it'll go away. But it doesn't go away. The only way it really gets dealt with is to come into the light of God, however embarrassing, horrible, you know, all that process is when that light comes in, you really see the, the, the healing of God begin. Um, you know, Freedom Session is a program we have in our church, which is a very, very powerful program. And, you know, a number of weeks into the program, one of the things is you have to do is you have to go through and, and list your sins, you know, and they do this for like a week. And I remember when I was going through, it was like thinking of all the stuff I've done and you have to do all this stuff and you write all this stuff down, this inventory. And the next week goes, okay, now, what about the stuff you didn't write down? I mean, the really, it's like, oh, we're going to do this again, you know? And then you go and confess that to a person in in, in privacy and confidentiality, a person listens and walks out, and you bring that into the light. And that's very, very difficult to do for a lot of people, depending on where you've been in your life. But that brings a healing. Now it's no longer a secret. It's no longer locked in the darkness. It's the light of Christ comes in and another Christian is heard and you admit that before the Lord. And it takes the, it takes the chains off of that thing that you did or the thing that was done to you both, both ways. Um, so that sunlight really, really is the best disinfectant. Okay, now we can start to brighten up a little bit. That was dark territory, so thank you, Lord. <laughs> Let's go on to 14, the second half of 14 and 21. Um, Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. We're not sure where this came from. It's not a direct quote from the Old Testament. It might have been a hymn. It might have been something that they would have recognized, a lyric you know, that the church was singing in the first century. It's definitely poetry or a song, so... So it makes sense. They know what it was from probably, but we don't. But anyway, arise, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully how you walk, not as um, unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with to the Lord in your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. It's just really, a, I think, kind of a wake-up call here. Paul says, be careful how you walk. Be wise and unwise, use, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. I think there's an urgency that Paul's talking about. And I think 
it's easy for us as 21st century Christians in Canada, we can just kind of cruise along. Like, you know, uh, yes, I love Jesus. Yes, I love being part of our church and it's a great experience. And, you know, there's not necessarily a sense of urgency, right? But I think what Paul is helping to say is, look, that we've got to use our time carefully. We're here for a reason and the time is not unlimited. You know, the kingdom of God has a, has a clock ticking in terms of what's going on here. And I think he's, he's reminding them to say it matters how we live, you know, and there's an urgency to what's going on. We're not just sleepwalking through our lives, but there is a purpose for us as Christians. The days are evil. Don't be uh, foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And, you know, and then he talks about wine. And of course, wine was a common staple because water was so nasty in lots of places that wine was fermented and you could drink it safely. But of course, it could be really, really abused. And there was a, you know, the god Bacchus, you know, uh, that people would worship and get all drunk. And I'm sure that there was a lot of that in Ephesus, you know. Uh, and again, there a way of life before that would have been a lot of that would have come through drunkenness. And I think Paul's just saying, look, don't do that because you lose control. You lose your ability to be able to tune into what God's doing if you're allowing yourself to come under the spirit. Interesting that when you go to a liquor store, they talk about spirits. I've always wondered about that, you know? It's like, wow, that's that. Do you realize how Christian that is, what you're talking about, you know? But don't be under that spirit. But then Paul talks about don't be filled with that kind of spirit, which takes away your consciousness, which takes away your edge, which takes away your understanding, which makes you do really stupid stuff. Don't be under the influence of that. Be under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Holy Spirit instead of being filled with wine. Uh, and it's an ongoing process. This word is, you could maybe translate it, keep on being filled with the Spirit. So it's a, it's a process that we're always doing is saying, Lord, fill me. Fill me up today, Lord. You know, fill, me, fill my tank up. So it's just an amazing contrast. And then he talks about, so be conscious of how you live. Be careful about, you know, alcohol and what that might do. And then he says, address each other in Psalms, our words. So we talked about in some of the last passages, things we're not supposed to do in our speech. Now it gives us some positive ones. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual psalms. Singing and making melody with the Lord in your heart. I, I, I can't even kind of imagine what a person would be like if they fully could do this, right? Uh, Dean and I were joking. We've had kind of a rough week. There hasn't been a lot of spiritual songs and singing and making melody in our heart this week. You know, there's been some, some arguing, right? So what would this look like? Uh, but Paul says, this is the kind of speech you want to have. This is not crude joking, not jesting, not wasting our time, not just talking about worthless things, but redeeming the time and using our mouth to build each one another up. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, hard to know exactly what those differences are. Remember I said Paul sometimes puts together synonyms, not necessarily meaning that there's a real fine difference between them, but he's making a point. It could be. Psalms could be scriptures, and people say that's scripture singing, like if you're singing actually from the Word of God. Hymns would be, you know, uh, known songs that the church sings, like maybe this lyric, if that's true, that that's a song from there. And then spiritual songs, I think that's just singing in the Lord, singing in the Holy Spirit, singing in tongues. Uh, but, you know, but the point is that we want to be making a melody in the Lord with our heart. So there's this contrast between all the darkness of what was before the darkness of speech, the darkness of action, the darkness of life, the darkness of outlook, the darkness of action, and then this contrast of what we can be like in Christ, singing and having this joy and giving thanks for everything. You know, man, I love being around someone who's thankful. You know, a person that's the glass is always half, you know, is overflowing. You know, it's, it's like, wow, you know, we don't have much, but look what we have. I'm so thankful for that. And man, I just know in my life, 
regularly I'll have to drill down and say, Lord, I want to be thankful today for everything I come in contact with. It changes my whole perspective in terms of what's there. So giving thankfulness for everything in the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So just this huge contrast between you know, this old way of who we were, the, the culture that they lived in, and how different, how transformed we can be because of the sacrifice that Christ made at the beginning of the chapter. And then 21, I just want your thinking about this, submitting one another for out of reverence for Christ. I think that might go more with next week, but I want you to be thinking about verse 21 because that's a key one for, for setting up for this next week. But um, So just this contrast between the two that, that I think we're not just messing around here. This is not just a game. We're not just uh, on cruise control. This is serious business. And our words and the way our actions are, how we live our life, the choices we make, what we do with our leisure, how we talk, I think it's just an urgency for Paul saying it matters. It really does matter. So what's the take home? Well, I've been thinking a lot about light and darkness in my own life and, uh, you know, and gray, because <laughs> gray is kind of the mixing of light and darkness, right? Where is gray in my life? And I um, was just thinking about, as I thought about this passage and the urgency of this and living, you know, lives to make a difference, uh, just asking myself this week, is there any area of darkness in my life? You know, is there anything, is there any video that I could flash up here for the way I've lived my life in the last week or the last month that would you would see it would embarrass me or make me nervous or, you know, whatever, right? Is there anything in my life that that it, I, sh I wouldn't want you to know know about, right? Um, is there anything that's that's dark in that area of my life? I was thinking about that and just praying through that this week and saying, Lord, I don't want to ever be anywhere that. And then I started thinking about gray, you know, is there every, even some areas, Lord, where I'm fudging into the dark and I know better? And I'll give you an illustration. You're going to laugh because you think it's probably super lame, but it was important to me this week. In our school buses, the district provides a nice, expensive glass cleaner. We clean our mirrors and stuff with them. So we always have these really nice spray bottles of, of glass cleaner. And this week, the mechanic gave me a new bottle, and I had maybe a quarter left in my bottle. And I, I thought, oh, man, this is such great. My windows of cars or windows at home are so dirty. I'm just going to take this and throw this in my backpack, you know, this, this remainder of the bottle, and just take it home. And I put it in there. And as soon as I did it, I was like, you can't do that. That's stealing. And it was like, you know, so I, right away I was like, yeah, I took it out of my backpack. You know, it's like, now that's a very small thing, okay? But it was the Holy Spirit speaking to me saying, I don't ever want you to be a person who steals from your employer because that's not who you are, right? And so just a little thing like that, and it may sound really corny and really, but you know what? I just wanted to be so serious and, and to, to God, will you speak to me about the areas where I'm starting in, even starting into the darkness? Lord, I don't want to be a person, I want to walk in the light. And because I know there's freedom in the light, you know, the darkness is all about bondage and all about chains and the light is all about being free in our life. Um, I thought about a, a neat little book. I'll just read you a little bit of it. It's a little, um, just kind of a pamphlet book. It's called My Heart, Christ's Home. Some of you might know this is an old classic that was written in the early 50s, but it's basically an illustration of a guy who comes. Are you out with you there? Look at you. Oh, man, snap. Very good. Very good. It's, it's kind of an extended metaphor of a person who comes to know Christ, and Jesus comes into their life, 
and slowly Jesus works through the different rooms in their life and graciously helps them to get them straightened out in the kitchen, the living room, the dining room, the, the shop, you know, all this kind of stuff. So it's just this process that God does in our lives of just graciously, this is sanctification. We talked about that a couple weeks ago, working those things out in our life as Christians. And then there's this one paragraph called the hall closet. This is at the end. There's one more matter of crucial consequence I'd like to share with you. As one day I found him waiting, he's speaking of Jesus, you know, I found Jesus waiting for me at the front door. An arresting look was in his eye. As I entered, he said to me, there's a peculiar odor in the house. Something must be dead around here. It's upstairs. I think it's in the hall closet. As soon as he said this, I knew what he was talking about. Indeed, there was a small closet up there on the hall landing, just a few feet square, in that closet behind lock and key, I had one or two little personal things I did not anyone, anyone to know about. Certainly, I did not want Christ to see them. They were dead and rotting things left over from the old life. Not wicked, but not right and good to have in the Christian life. Yet I loved them. I wanted them so much for myself, I was really afraid to admit they were there. Reluctantly, I went up the stairs with him. As we mounted, the door became stronger and stronger. He pointed to the door and said, it's in there, some dead thing. It made me angry. That's the only way I can put it. I had given him access to the study, to the dining room, to the living room, to the workroom, to the rec room, to the bedroom, and now he's asking me for my little two-by-four closet. I said to myself, this is too much. I'm not going to give him the key. Well, I responded, reading my thoughts. If you think I'm going to stay up here on the second floor with that smell, you're mistaken. I will take my bed out in the back porch or somewhere else. I'm certainly not going to stay around here. I saw him start down the stairs. When you have to come to know and love Jesus Christ, one of the worst things that can happen is to sense him withdrawing his faith and fellowship. I had to give in. I'll give you the key, I said sadly, but you'll have to open the closet and clean it. I haven't the strength to do it. I know, he said. I know you haven't. Just give me the key and just authorize me to handle the closet, and I will. So with trembling fingers, I passed the key over to him. He took it from my hand and walked over to the door, opened it, entered it, took out all the putrefying stuff that was rotting there and threw it all away. Then he cleansed the closet, painted it, fixed it all up, and in a moment's time, immediately a fresh, fragrant breeze swept through the house. The whole atmosphere changed. What a release and victory to have that dead thing out of my life. No matter what sin or what pain there might be in my past, Jesus is ready to forgive, to heal, and to make whole. So, yeah, just a neat little story, but just to encourage us, you know, that that thing that maybe God has asked us to give up, give up is not a sacrifice to us. It's something he wants to bless us with and bring us healing into. Uh, so let's just pray together as we close. Lord, I thank you for this gracious picture of you just being patient with us and you just making available your cleansing power. God, I just, um, if, even right now, if there's something that someone is thinking of, an area that is in a closet that needs to get dealt with, Lord, would you just graciously encourage them just to turn that over to you? Lord, we know that sunlight is the thing that purifies your light, your heavenly light, God. God, I pray that we would walk in freedom and just know the joy of not having anything holding us anymore from our past. Thank you that only you do this and only you can do this through your power and by your blood. It's just amazing, Lord. We say thank you, God. Amen.